Hey everybody, Johnny Morrison here. I uh, just wanted to let you know that the People's Theology is back. We took a short summer break to work on some other things and to get ready for the next running of a couple of episodes. But as of July, we are back to our bi-weekly, which I think means twice a month, schedule. So thank you so much for waiting around for us during the summer. Thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for sharing it. Um, and here it is. We're super excited about today's episode and excited about what's to come. We have a bunch of cool content lined up. So, yeah. Thanks. I've said this before, and just knowing me, I'll say it again, but I think it's worth saying right now, and that is that we live in tension. If you're aware, if you're paying attention, if you're cognizant, I think it'd be hard to not feel it, to not wake up and breathe the air of tension every single day. And what I mean by tension is, as one author said, it feels like our world is an age of anger, or as another author said, it feels like our age is one of contradiction. It's the feeling that there is things pressing in on it, that there is cross pressures that are, that are weighing in on the world in which we live, making it feel tensious. And the natural question that we're going to ask in this world is, what do we do in tension? Can we fix it? Can we make it better? Can we resolve it? In fact, I think these are the questions that we have been asking for most of human history, questions that have driven our most significant cultural projects. Our institutions, government, and inventions, they all begin with a recognition that all is not right, that there is a tension in the world. But at the same time, every one of those institutions and governments and cultural projects begins with the innate belief that things can be better. So we as humans, we see a problem, we build and we dream and we experiment to solve it, believing that tension can be resolved and that the world can be made better. I believe that these are good and right responses to the tension that we see in the world. We are image bearers, made in the likeness of a creator who has a habit of bringing light and life to wild waste. And so it feels natural for us to look at destruction and want to fix it, especially when we are the ones that are responsible for it in the first place. It's good to intervene in crisis and seek restoration, right to change our habits and decrease our ecological footprint, and honorable to get dirty cleaning shorelines damaged by oil spill. These things are good, just, and right, natural expressions of the Imago Dei. What happens, though, when we overestimate our ability to fix the problems? I think this is where most Western worldviews actually fail. Scholar Andrew Del Blanco in his book, The Death of Satan, writes, quote, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it, end quote. What he's saying is that we see evil, but have adopted worldviews that cannot account for the depth and breadth we witness. What happens? Well, we underestimate the problem and overestimate our ability to solve it. My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, if you've never listened to this podcast before, then the, the whole point is to talk about theology and culture like it matters. And that phrase, like it matters, well, I stole it from a, a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas talking about another theologian named Karl Barth, who he explained did theology like it matters, meaning his theology was grounded in the reality of the world around him. It was grounded in his actual relationship with Jesus, and it was grounded in his actual care and concern for the people that inhabited this place he called home. So that's what we want to be. 
people who do theology and culture like it matters because, well, it does. In today's episode, we're exploring what happens when we overestimate our ability to fix and solve problems. And we'll be all over the place today, from Genesis 11 to the Enlightenment to 19th century New York City and 2017 shopping malls. But connecting each of these places and ideas and moments in time is a fundamental human tendency to overestimate our ability to fix tension and solve problems. Today's episode is broken up into three acts. So first up, act number one, high on idealism. The Enlightenment was an era of unprecedented cultural advancement. Thomas Hobbes touched this ethos when he wrote, quote, Men look not at the greatness of the evil past, but the greatness of the good to follow, end quote. This was a time when Europe was high on idealism, idealism that believed we, through rationalism, empiricism, and humanism, had evolved past bygone ages and the barbarism and ancient ways it included. You could see it in events like the Reformation, or in thinkers like Newton, Galileo, and Descartes, or just in these new experiences that were happening to Western Europe, like the development of capitalism, the evolution of nation-states, and the industrialization of the modern Western world. Now, the things that are happening in this moment are massive, and they have huge implications for the world that we live in and the way that we think and see and engage with our modern societies. And all of that is important. But the thing that we need to talk about, and the thing that we need to pay attention to, is that right in the middle of this, in the middle of these developments, a new notion emerges. The autonomy and capability of the self. In a new way, the modern era emphasized the ability of man, the ability to solve problems, to dream and think, to refound governments on the basis of human rationality. It filled the world with a sense of potential and a belief that the world was moving by our effort and will to better and better days. This idea, the notion that man by his own ability can overcome great odds and progress history towards somewhere good, shows up everywhere. In political revolutions, in changes of government, in ideas, in philosophies, in art, in literature, and in music. And the song that's playing right now, you're probably familiar with. It plays in the movie Independence Day and shows up in a few moments where there's some great odd that the Americans need to overcome. The song is called A Fanfare for the Common Man by composer Aaron Copland. And it's written in 1942, right before the United States goes to war with Nazi Germany. And it's inspired by a speech by then Vice President Henry Wallace, which is a speech in honor of the century of the common man and this ability, this thing inside of man that enables him or empowers him to overcome and progress history towards somewhere good. The search of the freedom, the march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long drawn out people's revolution. In this great revolution of the people, there were the American Revolution of 1775, the French Revolution of 1792, 
Latin American revolutions of the Bolivarian era, the German Revolution of 1848 and the Russian Revolution of 1918. Each spoke for the common man in terms of blood on the battlefield. Did you pay attention to what he was saying? This is the era of the common man, and it's the common man's ability, power, and capability that has spurned on these revolutions that have so changed the world. But just as we're discovering Jupiter's final moon, the dream came to a halt. The greatest hopes of the Enlightenment came face to face with the greatest wars the world had ever seen. In World War I and World War II, Enlightenment ideals were bombarded again and again by the bombing of London, the horror of trench warfare, the rape of Nanking, the Battle of Leningrad, and the Holocaust. Humanism Modernism and rationalism crashed into the mountainous reality of evil in the mountain one. Historian and author Pankaj Mishra, in his book Age of Anger, writes, and quote, In Europe, the 19th century certainties had been undermined by historical calamities. End quote. In short, Enlightenment idealism crumbled, at least for a time. The high ideals of the Enlightenment tumbled as high ideals rooted in human ability always do. Now, it wasn't just secular ideals or worldviews that took a beating during the world wars. Mainline Christianity had also evolved and changed alongside of modernity. Mark Sayers writes, quote, A more materialist faith was formed, which removed the transcendent elements of Christianity and focused the believer's attention on an achievable kingdom of God that could be shaped by responsible and diligent human hands, end quote. The Christian church, along with its secular peers, believed a better future was possible through the work of human hands, the grit of human effort, and the sweat of human brows. While the Enlightenment thinkers were at work building the kingdom of the Ubermensch, Christians were at work building the kingdom of God. Now, I think part of this was natural. The church was a product of the age in which it exists, but it was also a response. The church, witnessing the rise of secularism, feared it would lose influence unless it too evolved to reflect the changing culture. So to become more palatable, doctrines that contradicted the new culture were changed. The Bible lost a place as a primary authority, miracles and the supernatural were done away with, and Jesus the God-man was transformed into Jesus the Enlightened Man. The Church of the Enlightenment placed the burden of responsibility on its own shoulders and attempted to advance the kingdom of God through sheer human effort alone. What happened? Well, the high ideals rooted in human ability tumbled. This may be an overstatement, but I think it's still true that a lot of the problems the church experiences today can actually be traced back to the decisions it made during modernity. Decisions to become like the culture that surrounded it. To believe in human ability above and beyond everything else. I also think this is one of the reasons people leave the church. Because they bought in to the same story that the church told during modernity. That it would 
achieve something or answer certain questions or that it would actually be all about them. And then when it's not those things, when it cannot be those things, when it cannot fulfill the promises of modernity, they're disappointed. And so they leave. I think the problems that we see both outside of the church and inside of the church, the problems caused by focus on human ability creates breeding grounds for what philosophers call resentment. Meaning we continue to believe that anything is possible, that we can do whatever we want, that we can progress history towards somewhere good, our own lives towards somewhere good. But we, like the world, are bombarded by the evil that we see or the inability that we have. Albert Camus described this saying, quote, it is an auto-intoxication, the malignant secretion of one's preconceived impotence inside the enclosure of the self, end quote. Camus, and like so many writers before him and thinkers before him, understood Rosatomont as a defining feature of our world and culture. A feeling where individual dissatisfaction with the actual available degree of opportunities and possibility collides with reality. If nothing else, you could say that the consequence for overestimating human ability is disappointment. You see it in the Enlightenment when human ability comes face to face with its own consequences. The decisions to wage devastating war reveal that human ability is not all it's made up to be. But it's also seen in the church. When human ability is overestimated and it underperforms, the result is inadequacy and disappointment. This leads us to Act Two building Babel. There's this story in the Bible, and it's a bit weird, and it's a bit hard to get your mind around, and a lot of people read it and have just totally different notions about what it means. Some people see it, and they think that it's primarily about a primitive God behaving badly, whereas another group read it on the other side, and they are inclined to see it as a story about sinful people behaving badly. But I don't think either of those answers really get at the heart of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. And like the story we just told in Act 1, I think this story is primarily about the tension we live in and our efforts to deal with it. Like us, the people of Shinar, the geographic area where the tower will be built, live in tension. Each day they wake up in the aftermath of sin and rebellion, experiencing the effects of human power wielded outside of covenant responsibility. They know personally the dangers of life in the wild, the fickleness of tribal powers, the struggle for sustenance, and the deep but futile desire for meaning that transcends the struggle. Their life is characterized by a vulnerability that is nearly impossible for a modern American to imagine. Right? There are no convenience stores packed to the brim with excess food, no police departments to administer justice and keep the peace, no safety nets, no welfare, no protection, but what they can provide for themselves. One mistake, one bad year, one group of merciless brigands and the people of Shinar lose it all. This is their every day. And like us, they want to fix it. But how do you protect yourselves from the vulnerability of life in the wild? and find a sense of meaning and purpose in the futility of repetitive struggle. You do what humans always do, what we're really good at doing. You join forces, 
push the boundaries of technological development and create an artifact with the power to keep the chaos of the wild at bay. In World War II, it was nuclear fission. In Genesis 11, it was a city. In Genesis 11, a new technology is developed, brick and mortar. Now this may not seem substantial to us, but we have to remember that culture is built upon the projects and ideas of previous people. So we don't get modern concrete unless some 6,000 years before humans discovered pitch, learned how to bake bricks, and joined the two together creating a whole new spectrum of architectural possibilities. With the discovery of these new and improved building materials, the people of Shinar enter into their own personal renaissance. The possibilities feel endless, and the future, for the very first time, looks hopeful and bright. With brick and mortar, the people will build a city, a city that will unite them around a joint cause and a joint location, protecting them from the outside, earning them a name, a purpose, and a greater sense of meaning. Now, on one hand, the people of Shinar are expressing a good and right desire, flexing their power and ability in good ways. Cities are a perfect example of culture making. They're products of human abilities that push boundaries that were previously thought impossible. They have the power to bring life and light to what once was inhospitable. They can be places of amazing human flourishing. Yet, as is the theme of this episode, Cities, places of great flourishing and amazing possibility, can quickly become places of exploitation, suffering, and poverty. In his work, How the Other Half Lives, photographer Jacob Rees documented the increasing destitution of the poor and working class living in post-Civil War New York City. Rees photographed in the late 1800s a time of radical economic transition. America had long been an agrarian economy, but with the advent of new technologies and a changing national landscape, was quickly becoming an industrial powerhouse. With this change came the first major wave of urbanization in America. With the majority of Americans had called rural communities homes, millions of people were now migrating to cities. And on top of this, some experts suggest that nearly 6 million immigrants came to the United States in the 1880s alone, many by the way of New York City and its famous Ellis Island. The problem is that American cities had not been built to handle this kind of influx. In 1865, New York City had a total of 15,309 tenements for a population that was quickly exceeding a million. Housing, sewage, water, and other social services were maxed, leaving the poor and working class in an increasingly precarious position. As the cities became centers of industrial labor, the wealthiest were able to flee to the country, able to manage their new industrial interests from afar, but the poor and working class had little choice. To leave the city would be to leave their only real opportunity for work. Rees captured the destitution of New York City slums, and with his photos, he began a process of important social reform. The name of his work, How the Other Half Lives, was a reference to the work of a French writer, Francois Rabelais, who wrote, Quote, one half of the world does not know how the other half lives, end quote. In referencing this work, Reese is drawing a reader's attention to the dichotomy of what we would call idolatry. The New York City elite had the power to separate themselves from the reality of life in the city. They placed their own interests, concern, and profit above the people they used, and in doing so, objectified the poor working class. Reese revealed the cost 
of idolatry in the city, showing the world that the tenement system failed because the wealthy cared more for the bottom line than for those at the bottom. And fundamentally, that they cared more for themselves than for those at the bottom. This is always the potential danger from cities. And it's the same danger that we're about to experience in Genesis chapter 11. The people of Shinar joined forces to make a name for themselves. And like Christians in the Enlightenment or the wealthy in post-Civil War New York City, they are caught up in their own power, becoming more convinced of their own grandeur and ability. And like the Christians of the Enlightenment, the people of Babel begin to believe that they have the power to fix the tension of the world. At the heart of the city of Babel is a tower, a massive structure designed to be the crowning jewel of the new city. It would be the highest marker of the people's innovation and advancement. It would play a central role in their mission to fix tension. But how can a tower, even a grand one, fix a broken world? Well, because the tower they were constructing is what's known as a ziggurat. Archaeologists have unearthed nearly 30 ziggurats throughout Mesopotamia. These towering structures were shaped like step pyramids, growing taller via successive ascending levels. Each ziggurat discovered has been located inside of a temple complex with its base connected to a temple and some kind of stairway, reaching to its top where there was a room and an altar. The name of these structures are helpful for understanding their purposes. The ziggurat in Babylon was roughly called, quote, Temple of the Foundation of Heaven and Earth, end quote. The name given to the ziggurat at Larsa was called Temple which Links Heaven and Earth, and at Sippar, Temple of the Stairway to Pure Heaven. The people of the ancient world believed that there was a physical or maybe metaphysical separation between the domain of God and between theirs, Earth. And they understood that to fix the tension of their own world, they needed to rejoin those two places. A ziggurat provided a way for the people to bridge that gap, to get to heaven and unify the spaces. If the gods or God or the creators wouldn't, then they, through their own power, would manufacture salvation. Like the Christians of the Enlightenment, the people of Babel believed that they could force the kingdom of God onto earth, or at least their way into it. Each new layer of their great tower was a movement towards relief, each successive stair a step towards peace. But the irony of Babel is that each brick laid was also a movement away from the Creator. The more the people believed they possessed the power to fix the world, the more they overestimated their own ability and underestimated the nature of evil, and the more they moved away from the Creator. As in the Enlightenment, the people evolved and rejected their need for the intervention of God, choosing instead to bear the burden themselves. One writer said, quote, The city of Babel amounts to a massive declaration of independence from God, a defiantly human effort to deal with the world and all its wonder and terror, to put distance between humans and God and all his wonder and terror. At the end of the day, the Babel project wasn't flawed because it was a city or because it was a desire for meaning and purpose and unity. It was the arrogance and defiance of humans that corrupted the work. Like in the Garden of Genesis 3, humans bought into a myth of transcendence, rejected the Creator in His ways, and choose to wield power outside of responsibility. The result was a city that looks dangerously like New York in the 1880s. A marvel of industrial revolution, pumping fresh power into the veins of the elite while siphoning from the vulnerable. Or to say it another way, quote, 
the Babel story presents us with people who seem intent on reaching the heavens even while resisting God's will for them on earth, quote. But, as another author said, God will not be invaded. Instead, God intervenes in the Babel project because he cares deeply for the vulnerable. This has nothing to do with the fear of rival powers, but has everything to do with the destructive power of exploitation. God scatters the people of Shinar to protect the people of Shinar from the dangers of their own overestimated ability. This is why I think the Babel story is about so much more than just primitive people or primitive gods. It's our story. A story about what happens when we try to fix problems by overestimating ability and just look at history. If anything, it's a story of exploitation, not of successful human ability overcoming the problems of our world. Act 3. Manufacturing Salvation We don't live in the ancient world, and the way we think about our lives and the problems we face have changed. But it's important to look a bit deeper and understand that the means might have changed, but the ends have not. We want the same things as the people of Babel. They built a ziggurat to satiate their need for meaning and purpose, and we build careers, families, friends, and lists of lovers to fulfill ours. The thing is, though, in America, there are even easier ways to find a sense of meaning. You go out and buy it. The average American adult watches nearly 33 hours of television a week. And during an average hour, you will watch 15 minutes of cleverly crafted short films trying to convince you that you are one purchase away from happiness. New smartwatches, phones, cars, and robotic vacuums are cultural innovations that promise to add substance to your life. And as much as you might want to reject that narrative, most of us have literally bought in. But what separates these projects from the one at Babel? Both guarantee a better life, both promise to empower you for more living, and both argue that they are the means for true flourishing, built and rooted in human ability. If they didn't promise these things, we would not buy or build them. The only real difference between these innovations and Babel is that Babel was harder which is what makes buying flourishing so addicting. It requires just enough work to be rewarding, but it's easy enough that we can go out and do it again as soon as the excitement of the last product wears off. Attempting to purchase flourishing happens at all levels. Kids do it when they flail on the ground demanding the newest toy. We do it when we spend money on vacations we pray will save our marriages. And billionaires do it when they invest fortunes into new ideas that promise to save the world from disaster. But here's the thing about even the best cultural products. They cannot fix the tension of the world. And more often than not, they only add to it. Orville Wright always believed that the power of flight would unify the world and bring peace to warring peoples. And on December 17, 1903, when he took his first flight, he could almost see that dream become a reality. In 1903, peace seemed possible, but 43 years later, Orville Wright bore witness to the destructive power of the very best human innovation when the Enola Gay took flight, not to unify the world, but to drop a five-ton atomic bomb over Hiroshima. Orville Wright's peace project became an agent of death. And Orville isn't alone. Arthur Galston invented a chemical that would speed the growth of soybeans and increase food production. 
But he lived to see the chemical made into a herbicide known as Agent Orange that was sprayed in Vietnam, causing nearly 400,000 deaths and another 500,000 birth defects. Our best projects, our best efforts driven by human ability, our greatest hopes, our most sophisticated inventions, they all have dark sides. Social media has the power to connect us with billions of people, to give voice to the marginalized and be a tool of social upheaval and reform. But it's even easier for social media to be a battleground of trolls that squash and diminish the voice of women and minorities. It's a tool that has immense potential, but for every moment of social reform and liberation, there are thousands of trolling, shaming, and withdrawal. And that's the thing, discovery, innovation, and invention are good and right uses of human ability. But they will never be enough to save us. That doesn't mean we can't positively impact the world around us. We can and have, but it means we cannot ultimately fix the world around us. Our very best attempts will always be just that, attempts. As Carolyn Albert writes, quote, Inasmuch as God's power is ultimate, ultimate redemption belongs in the hands of God. Human power, however great, is not ultimate, and thus we can only participate in redemption in a limited way. In other words, we can only redeem that over which we have power, end quote. If you think back to Act 1, purchasing and manufacturing salvation, it is a hyper-real dream, one that cannot be achieved and instead produces resentment that deep inadequacy in the midst of longing. Author Pankaj Mishra argues that that feeling, that resentment in the midst of a consumer culture is at the heart of so many of the problems we see today. That there are promises that have been offered, but promises that at the end of the day are available to a minority, and even in that, uh, promises that are available to none. But promises that promise a good life and then prove totally incapable of achieving and fulfilling it. Now there is another, an even more seductive form of manufacturing salvation that is just as shallow as Babel and just as pervasive as attempts to purchase flourishing. It's what we'll call perfectionism. Perfectionism has one goal, be good enough. Whether that's morally, academically, artistically, relationally, or professionally, perfectionism demands that we meet the highest bar of performance and promises that everything will be all right if we do. Like Babel, perfectionism is a work of human effort and ability, an overestimation of our own power and an underestimation of the problems that we face. When perfectionism finds a home in the church, it looks like moralism and attempts to white-knuckle holiness. Perfectionism is tricky to diagnose. Ambition and passion are good and right things that can be pursued without ever making them ultimate things. And on top of that, it's hard to look into someone's life and accuse them of pursuing something too much, of either pursuing holiness too much or pursuing ambition too much or pursuing relationships too much. Yet both become destructive when they become the means by which we hope to fix ourselves the world. Perfectionism in religion is maybe the most shallow of all, and it is a massive overestimation of human ability. 
The prophet Isaiah addressing Israel makes this very critique of their ability, saying, quote, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, unquote. Like each brick of Babel, our best deeds, when used to fix ourselves, actually take us further away from the Creator because they are rooted in the same evil that caused the problem, self-exaltation. We do not have the power to transcend our creatureliness, and we're never called to. Each time we try, we put ourselves in the position of the Creator, a role we cannot fill and a role He will not share. The human condition is just too deep to be filled with accomplished dreams. And every time we try to make our dreams, our pursuits ultimate, we rob them of the true joy they would have given. Like Babel, our best and biggest dreams are too small to deal with the problems of the human heart, no matter how many we accomplish. And at the end of the day, our inability produces resentment, that deep, abiding inadequacy which tends towards true resentment, anger, and lostness. It's weird that Genesis 11 in our English Bibles uses the Hebrew name for the city of Shinar, because for the rest of Scripture, this place will be known as Babylon a constant source of antagonism towards God's mission and people. As the story advances, that antagonism will be quite literal. The people of Babylon will be a very real threat. But for the most part, Babylon plays an important literary role in God's story. They represent misused power, autonomy, and self-exaltation, standing in contrast to the way of God and the work he is accomplishing in the world. Like before, and like now, God's people have a choice to make about the way they're going to exist in the world. Will they choose the way of the Creator or the way of Babylon? You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City. For more information about the show or the church, check out our website at www.missiodayslc.com. And more importantly than anything else, this episode stuck out to you, it answered some questions, or it answers questions of someone you know, then send it to a friend. And if you would, go ahead and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks.